Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 78. All right, guys. So this is starting to become a little bit of a tradition now. In this week's episode, I want to talk a little bit about what's new in iOS 9. The reason for that is because a lot of people, yeah, they are stuck supporting older versions of the OS, and they typically take a N-1 strategy, so they'll support the most current and the last released version as well. So that would be iOS 9. And so now you can actually start using some iOS 9 features that are out there. But uh, first, I want to kind of catch up with you guys a little bit. So you uh, ordered your iPhones? Yeah, I'm the only one who ordered anything, right? You guys are both waiting till the big stuff next year, right? <laughs> yeah, I held off, but I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, my my wife, she bought the, the hottest phone on the market, the Note 7, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> took it back last this past week, and she ordered a Jet Black 7 Plus. Nice, that's what I got in the mail yeah. today, too. <laughs> <laughs> you so, got yours today. She's not getting hers till November. And we'll see about that. They told me I won't get mine till October. And uh, this is, as we record, Monday the 19th, and I've got mine. So I had to wait one extra business day. Well, that's good. And you weren't but, on the upgrade program at all, right? So you Nope. Just, I'm, I'm just a normal... Normal schmo. Yeah. It is really nice and shiny, and I, I put a case on it, and I'm torn about it, because it makes it a lot less shiny when you put the... Even though it's a clear case... Loses a lot of the luster. So you got a clear case, even. Oh, not... yeah, I ordered a clear case, uh, and it ch- shipped before they had announced it, maybe? No, before they started shipping the phones, at least. Yeah, it seems like a shame to put a case on that thing. Well, part of my problem is I do the magnetic thing, and I don't know if I just want to stick, stick a piece of metal right to the back of my phone. Maybe I'll be convinced. Mm. It's a lot harder to drop. That was one of my issues before, is the 6 and the Plus and the 6S Plus were too bulky uh, and slippery, so I... I drop them, but I could see myself not dropping this one because it's got the extra grippy and it doesn't explode. It <laughs> doesn't catch on fire. Yeah. No, not that you know. Yeah, not not so far. I've had a few glitches from you know what I've seen with a few some of the hardware. There was an issue with the earphones and earbuds and uh thought I saw something else with airplane mode causing issues. Hmm, I hadn't seen the airplane mode thing. I think most of that is software fixable, not necessarily a hardware defect. Yeah, my biggest thing is I haven't gotten used to the new home button yet, but I've got a feeling I'll get used to it. So I know it doesn't feel quite the same as the uh, trackpad on the Mac, even though it kind of works the same way. It gives you that tactic feedback, but it doesn't necessarily feel like you're pushing a button. And well, it, it, it kind of feels exactly like the like a trackpad in that it feels like you're pushing in the whole phone. It doesn't feel like you're pushing a button. and it just happened to be that the sensation you got on the trackpad felt like you were pressing in the whole thing, which was kind of what they were going for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like the 3D touch for the home button. Mm-hmm. Or not kind of, it, it is. Yep, it is. <laughs> yeah, I get to try one out, and it, it really did feel like the uh, magic trackpad. Yeah, it feels like the whole phone is moving, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not quite the right perception. I guess it's a lot of uncanny valley there. Yeah, but I mean, Android phones have been doing soft buttons for years, and horribly so. Eh, they're buttons. I mean, who cares what yeah. they? They don't. They don't need to be able to be pressed. So I'm fine with it. It'll. I'm sure I'll get used to it. So, um, how about Swift three? Are you guys enjoying that migrating projects? Argo, I know you're not. I actually, I actually was toying around with something the other day and brought in a snapshot, and I had to migrate snapshot to Swift three. So I did some of that. <laughs> 
right. I was trying to get some screenshots for my apps automated, doing some Swift in my UI testing target. <laughs> That's a start. Yeah. It's a little bit to get used to, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of surprised at how many third-party libraries I've run into that haven't been updated for Swift 3, or at least uh, aren't aren't completely ready. I don't know if you've run into that at all. Yeah, for me, it's been Swifty JSON and RX Swift, and RX Swift is in beta right now, I believe. So, yeah. and it's coming. Their their betas are actually pretty high quality betas. And I, there were some that I tried earlier on, like during the betas and they had branches that, and the branches just weren't quite ready that you couldn't build with them. Um, but it, even after the GM, I found a few projects that just haven't bothered to be updated for Swift 3. It's not, most of them, it's not a huge deal to just fork it and run the migrator and clean it up because um, they're small projects, but like something like RX Swift, I could imagine trying to update that. Yeah. But I kind of feel like if they're not actively maintaining and working on a Swift 3 branch right now, or if it's not already merged into master, that maybe it's a library you should look at alternatives for. Right. Yeah. It's clearly abandonware at that point. And you could fork it and maintain it yourself going forward, or you can find an alternative or build your own. Right. Which is, we, uh, we had Josh Brown on the podcast a while back now, but he had a good blog post about that, about choosing your dependencies. Yeah. And I've I've talked to a few companies recently that have talked about avoiding third-party dependencies. Some go to an extreme and kind of do a not invented here. You know, definitely run into enough cases where the library hasn't been maintained and you know, to some degree, it's almost more work to, to deal with that third-party dependency that you probably don't need the whole thing. You probably are just using it for one piece or a subset of the functionality. So it's, you know, between these libraries not getting maintained and the breaking changes in Swift 3, uh, I, I can see why people have avoided going to Swift and especially third-party libraries written in Swift. Yeah, well, Apple didn't help us out at all when they changed the sy- syntax again in the GM, the last right. beta six was one way they had breaking changes from before and they had breaking changes again with the gm yeah and i think i saw a post that said uh three one will also have some more breaking changes yay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that wasn't like an official source but it wouldn't surprise me it kind of makes you appreciate java's stance of always being backwards compatible or how microsoft (laughs) was really good about doing that for a while it's really a shame. Yeah, I, to some degree, Java took it to a point where they made it difficult for the language to evolve. Yeah, I wonder if we're kind of going to the other extreme and overcompensating for that with Swift. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly part of their their approach is let's break it now so we can don't have to break it later. Right. And hopefully they'll, they'll break the whole public open file private stuff again. We need a better syntax than that. Just my personal opinion there. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it, but I don't know. I can get used to it, but to me, it doesn't scream exactly what it's doing. Open. That's what you do to a file, right? I don't know. For the folks that have kind of put off migrating to Swift 3, Daniel Steinberg has a pretty good series on Realm.io that covers most of the major language changes. So if you want a a nice overview of everything that's changed, uh, there's several videos covering the major parts. It's uh, broken into three different articles, each covering a handful of aspects of the language. Okay. Yeah, so it looks like iOS 10 is on a pretty good pace for uh, its adoption rate here. Yeah, we uh, 7 was probably the best adoption rate they ever had. 
eight kind of slowed that trend down and then nine picked it back up a little bit but it seems like 10 is pretty much following in that pathway what do you guys think yeah i saw one post that said 10 was outpacing nine but looking at the charts it doesn't look like if it is outpacing nine it's not too far off from where nine was yeah it seems like it's pretty close but everyone wants the lasers i i thought more people would want the lasers so i guess i'm kind of disappointed in the adoption rate so far the lasers yeah for the the iMessage lasers? Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought everyone would want to update so they could get the lasers. I I think that's coming. I, I th- you know we're the lasers are there. I've been using them. Don't get me wrong, but not everyone can see the lasers yet. Uh, I uh, uh, my brother's birthday was today, and so I sent him a text wishing him a happy birthday. And uh, without me doing anything, it decided to throw in get some balloons. balloons. Nice. Yeah. So I'm not sure what you have to say to get the lasers automatically, but I'd be interested to find out. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if there's like a phrase. Yeah, I feel like there must be. If there is one for balloons, then there must be one for like all the other. Like shot first. <laughs> I, you know, I think we're definitely on a good track. I could see by the time this episode comes out that we might be near or past 40%. Right now, it's right around 34% adoption of iOS 10. iOS 8 is somewhere, I think, a little under 4%. Yeah, that's that's actually including iOS 7, at least on the next panel chart. Yeah, I went back and looked at the iOS 8 chart. It's it's interesting looking at that one because it makes it look like the older versions are have surpassed. It have now have had a resurgence because it says older where it really means other. Mm. Uh, so iOS 10 is uh, confusing that chart a bit. But um, but yeah, we're you know as you mentioned, we're kind of like finally at that point where you know iOS 8's less than five percent of the market. And now it's a pretty good time to start adopting features that were introduced in iOS 9 that you may not have been able to take advantage of because, you know, you want to support iOS 8. All right. Drop it like a hot potato. Yeah. I'm not quite there yet. I feel like I need to wait a little bit longer, but I think I'm hopefully going to drop support for iOS 8 uh, very soon. Yeah, I think we'll probably do that too. Yeah, I would drop it as soon as you can. There's a lot of good things in 9. We have some newer apps that we targeted 9 from the start. Uh, so we were able to take advantage of the, some, some of the new features, but some of the older apps that have been around for a while that have a larger user base, existing user base, we've kept eight around for a while. So if you guys were starting a new app now, would you target nine or 10? Because one of the nice things we had with, with iOS 9 when it came out is everything that iOS 8 supported, iOS 9 also did. So it was kind of a no-brainer. If you're starting something new, iOS 9 only, right? But it's not yeah. as clear here as what the right thing is to do. Yeah, and 9 did drop like one device. I think like I think the the iPhone 4 uh, you still had the 4s but Okay. Um, it dropped the four, which was, I think that's right. Yeah. It still had the original iPad mini. Yeah. But that's now gone in 10. Yeah. So I think uh, if you target 10, there aren't any non-retina screens to worry about. And hmm. the only three and a half inch screen that you have to worry about is the 2X version of a phone app on an iPad. And you think that would never happen, but it happens more <laughs> often than you think. <laughs> So, uh, you know what, I'm trying to think if there was anything really that compelling in 10 where I would say I need to have this or work with this instead of supporting 9. I'm drawing a blank right now. So much of 10 was about extensions. So, you know, those are things that you could probably support conditionally that it wasn't going to like make or break your app unless unless your app was really about the extension that you were providing, whether it was a message app or a calendar app or not calendar, a map app. Or a ride sharing app or... Yeah. 
And I think there are some features, Siri integration. Yeah, so I guess this one would be a lot easier to progressively enhance than, say, going from 8 to 9, where you yeah. didn't have stack views, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I think now that we're in this, like, ex where most of the new stuff is in extensions, it's not as much of a, of this en envy of the, the latest and greatest. Yeah, so I made a little bit of a list today of all the cool things in iOS 9. So if you guys all wanted to go back in time and discuss the keynote, not really, but yeah, some of the some of the interesting things that I thought we had multitasking on iPad. And so, but that one is really something that you probably already had to support if you have an iPad app. It's not something that you could just take advantage of new because you just had your size classes and the multitasking just kind of changed up your size class for you. And your iPad app kind of became a phone app occasionally. Storyboard references, I think, was a a big one that yeah was it really well maybe not as big as some of the things but i mean i would i would just like if i had a big collection of things i would put them in one storyboard and if i there's some other group of things i wanted to go to then i would just do it programmatically for that one you know transition from here to there yeah and and i'm kind of the same way but for people who are feel like they need to use a segue for every transition. You know, the storyboard references lets you kind of get the best of both worlds where you can yeah. break up your storyboards, but still have that same model for transitioning from one screen to the next. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's yeah. a it's a nice feature, but it wasn't one of those things was like, man, I really wish I had that because my life <laughs> sucks now without it. All right. Well, yeah, but if you had, say, a common view controller in to set off in its own little storyboard that maybe you had to refer to a lot, like some kind of a detail screen that's been, that gets navigated to a lot, some kind of informational screen, then it was helpful just to be able to write that segue and not have to write it, you know, okay, three lines of code or, or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's nice. The one thing though about using segues that kind of I don't like is that you tell the view controller, hey, perform this segue, but you don't get to give it any data to like hold on to or anything. Yeah. And that's why you've got the prepare for segue and then you've got to right, then you cast gotta go look it. up your data again. Yeah. Casting. If it's inside of a nav controller, you then have to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to assume that it's the first view controller in the, in the nav controller I just received. And, you know, to some degree, you have to know way too much about the structure of that view controller in order to inject, uh, any, any supporting classes. So yeah, it, it kind of breaks encapsulation a little bit, you know, some of the benefits mm -hmm. of the storyboard. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a little ugly. And I always did feel a little clunky trying to pass data from storyboard to storyboard and they're just yeah just view controllers to view controllers but that was it's still a nice handy one and i was surprised that the tooling didn't allow you to target ios 8 with that because it seemed like it would be something that was just built into the compiler the storyboard compiler yeah like if you but, were using the uh what are they called the resource things <laughs> i always forget the name of them <laughs> bundles no not bundles asset library yeah, if you were using asset libraries, it would just compile stuff down uh, so that you could ship on older versions and they would like name everything appropriately and you would be just fine for a lot of things. Sometimes there were features they had that they there wasn't enough file naming way to do it and it couldn't do it. But that was backwards compatible. Yeah, I did run into an issue where one version of iOS was OK with you putting a JPEG in the asset catalog and other versions, older versions did not like that. Yeah, we had an issue with iOS 8.1 the other day with the asset catalog. So we were like, we're just going to drop support uh, for iOS 8.1. <laughs> 
That's probably like one percent of your users, if that. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't well, a big deal. I mean, eight point one too. I mean, it's there's that's probably far less than one percent. Yeah, I mean, and that was only when building with the iOS tennis. And you try try not upgrading a point release on iOS, mm-hmm. like pretty much daily reminders that you need to upgrade. And it's like, as far as I know, there's no option, certainly not in the dialogue, to say, "Don't ask me again." It's the, "Do you want to do it now, or do you want to do it later?" Yeah. So those older point releases, you almost don't need to worry about. But it was probably yeah. somebody on a 16 gig phone and they, they couldn't free up enough space to throw that four gigabyte download onto. Yeah, yeah true. It's possible. Um, but they probably don't have room for your app. Either. And they don't care about the version <laughs> of my app either. That's new and ship built with iOS 10 SDK. So, right. So another, um, well, this one's probably bigger than storyboard references about Safari view controller. That was a good one. Yeah, that was, uh, Argo, I know you were kind of excited when that came out. You even logged the bug, didn't you? Or, or found a workaround to an early I probably version? did. I, I can't remember that far back. <laughs> I think but yeah, uh, Safari view yeah, controller is nice. You had a plus and the back button was way at the top left. So I think, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> you did something with the, the gesture. Which they added later. Yeah. Yeah. When it first came out, it was a modal. And then, but I think it did have a back button, right? And it kind of presented like a modal, but had a back button. I think it had the little back button at the top. Yeah. Then they cleaned it up. So now it really does look like it's part of your app. Yeah. Even though it's not necessarily part of your app. You've got a little bit of theming you can do. You can change the uh, tint color of the nav bar items. Mm -hmm. Um, But not much beyond that. I'll tell you the best use for that is OAuth. Since it's actually using the user's keychain and cookies and stuff from Safari. Yeah. If you've already logged into the mobile website, you get a grant dialog box instead of a, hey, do you remember your username and password for this website? Yeah, it used the cookies from Safari, which was really nice. Still is really nice. Mm-hmm. That was one of those features that was nice enough to me that I would. Condi- I think we conditionally uh, supported it even when we didn't drop support for iOS eight, just because so much more convenient. Yeah, but that's one of those those features where you've got to kind of do it both ways. Yeah. You know, if, yeah. if iOS nine do it this way, mm-hmm. else do it the old way. Yeah. Uh, kind of similar to some degree with like if you wanted to support picture in picture on the iPad, you kind of. You know, the MP movie player no longer, you know, it worked, but didn't have the features you wanted. So if you're on a newer version of iOS, you could do the picture in picture, but you had to use the AV library to do it, which looked a lot like the MP movie player, but had some distinct differences as well. You know, one feature I like about the Safari view controller is you can turn on reader mode. So if you're opening content from a third party, you can just set reader mode to true and uh, it'll take away all the navigation and ads and everything. Oh. You know, that's one thing I don't use very often. Well, if you are using Safari View Controller, it's, it's really kind of nice if you have like a content-based application, then you don't have to, as, especially for a content-oriented page, you just set the flag to true and it looks a hundred times better in, in the browser. Okay. But depending on the nature of the app, you know, that whoever's providing that content might get a little annoyed because now they're not getting their ad revenue. Well, hopefully you're maybe just going out to your own website or using it sparingly. You wouldn't want to implement a full-on browser-based experience with this, I wouldn't think. That would be weird. So how about the contacts framework? Previously, you had a nice old crufty C API, and they... Put a nice little object-oriented facade on that. Have you guys used that at all? Had any opportunities? I used the old crappy framework back in the day, uh, but the app we use it on has since been uh, removed from the App Store. But yeah, it's I can imagine that would be a lot easier to work with. So if I did something with contacts, 
<laughs> I would be all about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't continue this trend of wrapping some of those old C-oriented libraries. Like, I, I can't remember anything in iOS 10 that along the same vein. Well, it seems like they started just... I mean, I, I know Address Book yeah. was one of the worst. Well, Core Graphics got a bit of a makeover for Swift because now everything is... They look makes it look like methods on the CG context. So it, but it's more of a um, Pilot Swift thing than it is an actual API rewriter. Yeah, the animations yeah. framework were like that too. It seems like seems like they're going to focus more on Swift defined things at this point than maybe even with a C straight up C stuff than wrapping in Objective C because. I guess that's what they're aiming for at this point. And I may be wrong about this, but I don't think they've done anything with Keychain, have they? So that's still kind of the old C API. Yeah, but isn't there a pretty good, there are pretty good libraries out there that wrap that already, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's one of those things like it feels like you shouldn't have to. Um, <laughs> you know, there may be a good reason for that to be written in C, but I don't know. I feel like that's that's one of those uh, areas of the uh, of the the libraries that still could use a little TLC. Yeah, I mean, they've been doing a lot of stuff security-wise. It seems like making it easier to work keychain framework would be a really good thing just for users in general. So, yeah, it does seem like a, maybe iOS 11 will get, get our Swifty keychain library or something. Argo, yeah. throw yeah. out the predictions already. <laughs> Sorry, we're talking about <laughs> iOS 9. How about those on-demand resources, guys? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I'm actually looking at using that because the company I'm at right now, they want to do some onboarding videos. Which, yeah, don't judge. I'm not really for it. But I guess in some cases for certain user populations, it will be helpful. But rather than having these little uh, movie files, you know, they're like you know, they're a couple megabytes here and there. But if you get enough of these things, it's really going to start adding to your app download size. So we're... Well, and then at... you have your iPad version and your iPhone version. And yeah. And you want ones for the right screen sizes. <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah, you would think that. Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, some but, of that uh, you can get. Some of that you can get with the app thinning. Like if you mark different assets for different platforms, you know, theoretically the app thinning would only download the right assets. Yeah, that's well, true. that's what the on-demand resources are. Well, yes well, and no. It's a little different because I mean, the, yeah, the app thinning will pull out say non-iPad no uh, yeah resources yeah. for the iPad version, but the on-demand stuff allows you to actually download these things from the app store and there's you can specify different times to download these things yeah. too so you could i believe you can download like right after the user has downloaded your app which is interesting it's another flag and then you can also download whenever you want yeah i mentally group them together <laughs> example they gave was downloading different levels in in a game so you would download the next level and then when you didn't need anymore you could get rid of it and download another level so you never necessarily had everything downloaded at once right and it became pretty obvious in the fall that last fall that this was really something geared towards the apple tv but it can be helpful for mobile you know phone devices as well yeah and we've got one app that the concepts would be perfect it's just uh the nature of the assets it's a lot of really large video files that they need available offline and i don't think the assets and it's an enterprise app you know between those two issues of the files being really large and the uh it being an enterprise distribution, it makes it kind of difficult to use this feature, but you know, we kind of want that same functionality. Is there a cap on the size of the file? Well, there's certainly a cap on how much you can download on like the Apple TV. Sure. I thought it was like a gigabyte or, or two or something, is, wasn't it? Yeah. And you know, we've got enough video content in the app that if we tried to download everything, we'd be in that neighborhood. Now, 
not a gigabyte or two. I, I suppose we're not quite that large. We've compressed a lot of the videos, but it would be, it's hundreds of megs of videos. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice things about these on-demand resources too, is that I believe you can update them without actually doing a new app version. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you can just deploy new content. Yeah. And with if you're using the Xcode server, you can use that for your internal testing as well. Okay. So it'll it'll use the Xcode server as the, uh, the remote asset catalog or on-demand resources. Right. That that would imply that people are actually using Xcode server. I've run into one or two companies that use it for one reason or another. It certainly does a few things better. <laughs> it manages profiles a little better than if you had to do it manually, but with things like Fastlane, that's less of an issue. Yeah, I think it would be okay as maybe a parallel build server to get some extra functionality that you couldn't get with the generic ones, but I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. Yeah. It's a good light CI for yeah. iOS. It was something that a lot of like the generic CI servers can't do is code coverage reporting. And, right. Um, that was a big one they introduced last year. Yeah. It was last was year. It this year. It wasn't this year. It was at least okay. last year. I think it was Xcode 7. Um, so it's you know pretty easy to enable, but getting the data out of it in a third-party CI server is a little difficult. BuddyBuild actually does provide reporting on code coverage now, if you turn that on. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, okay. I just had to disable the code coverage I was using for, for our Fastlane builds when I upgraded to Xcode 8. They were still working in Xcode 7, so I haven't I haven't got around to trying to get the, the new stuff working and reporting. There's got to be some third-party library that'll make that readable. Yeah. I, I don't know if you were using G-Cub yeah, yeah. or you know, it seems like that's what everybody was using. And that might be what Xcode's using under the hood. But it's got decent reports to go around it. For a minute there, I thought you were saying that you had to get turn off code coverage because it was just getting too depressing. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a different story. <laughs> it just stopped working. Is this specific <laughs> cause for it getting turned off? <laughs> yeah. In this case, yeah, okay. And I'm I'm not sure how well GCov is even maintained. GGov is well, there's even actually maintained. A not gov, gov. Apple. I think it's an Apple project. There's LCov, which I think is linked to LLVM. So I think that's they they're probably using that at this point. But yeah. So here's a question for you guys: Have you ever tried to write a collection view layout where you had to pin a section header, kind of like table views do? Yes, I've tried to. I've had to try to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I I've tried I've had to do that as well, and I missed this last year this time around. But there's actually a boolean property you can set in the UI collection view flow layout called section headers pinned to visible bounds, and it'll force the flow layout to work kind of like table view does. Hmm. So it works for section headers, but I don't know if it works for a footer type of thing. Hmm. I think something else that they introduced with iOS 9 and collection views was the API for reordering. And they reiterated that with iOS 10, but I think it had been in there since iOS 9. Nobody really knew it was there. And maybe it got better with 10. Reordering collection views? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's like a checkbox or something you can set, right? Yeah, I don't don't know the details of how what you have to do to implement it but i you know for the I think for the most part it's pretty straightforward probably not quite as easy as a table view but and maybe assumes a flow layout oh yeah i would imagine so because a lot of that 
seems pretty layout specific. Yeah. I, you know, just sidebar, I'm kind of disappointed that there aren't more custom layout for collection views. You know, I kind of assumed there would be like this huge library of open source layouts. And it just seems like there really aren't that many. If, if you Google collection view layout on, you know, in GitHub, it's just uh, actually a pretty small number. And a lot of them yeah. aren't maintained. Or they're based off of code samples from, from DubDub. Yeah. Things like waterfall or cascading layouts. There's there's a few of those, but most of them haven't been touched in several years. Yeah, I wonder if well, Pinterest I guess had that nice little waterfall layout, and people were copying that for a while. But I'm not a Pinterest user, so I don't know if they're still doing that or if they've moved on. I think they're still doing it. What do you mean by a waterfall layout? Where you have multiple columns and the content just flows down. Cells may be different heights, but the content just kind of everything kind of lines up and flows down. Yeah. So there's there's no gaps, you know, in a normal flow layout. If you had something that was 100 pixels and it was right next to something that was 90 pixels, the next uh, row down would start at that 100 pixel mark. Whereas a. Oh, is that like. So you're talking about like the auto sizing cells or whatever? Not auto sizing. Okay. I mean, you still have to accommodate yeah. it. Auto sizing, they added a little bit of support with that with UI collection views. I think with iOS 9, iOS 10, it actually works. I, I haven't tried it on 10, but I know it didn't quite work right on iOS 9. It's, it's basically a staggered layout. Things will fill gaps for uh, their, their parent behind or on top of them, previous to them. And there's algorithms to try to keep the uh, stacks from uh, not getting out of, out of too far out of whack. So they'll try to keep them to a relative equal length so that you don't have, if you have, say, uh, five rows and, and two columns, that uh, it'll position things so that those two columns end up being roughly the same length versus maybe one where it would be the left one would be three times as big as the right one or something. That's a waterfall layout. It's hard to describe on a podcast. But. Yeah. You know, basically, if you've used Pinterest. Yeah, I need to use the Pinterest app again, I guess. Is it on the iPhone yeah. or just the iPad? Um, Got me. I don't know I if there's an both. iPad app for Pinterest or not. I don't know. I think, I don't know. iPhone might be one column or one or two columns. And then if you're in a bigger form factor, you've got probably three or four columns. See if I turn it on but, yeah. the side. Okay. I see now. This you is something that, that gets easier with iOS 10, but um, but yeah, it's, it's just, you know, I, I think Apple was expecting there to be quite a bit of community contributions for layout managers, and I, I'm sure anybody who's worked with collection views enough has probably written or at least modified layout manager, layout view. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. I kind of got the impression when they came out with collection views that you know, if we gave it a year or two, we would only be using them, not UI table views at all anymore. And it seems like the opposite has happened. Like I've kind of doubled down on UI table views as long as I'm not in an iPad. Just yeah, I, just because they're simpler and they seem to do more stuff for you. And there's the layout stuff is all still really complicated. I think with like iOS 9 and iOS 10, collection views get a lot closer to being able to do everything that a table view can do. I mean, there's still some things that table views do better. But, you know, if you can pin the section headers and reorder and uh, some some better layout, which they, they've done, and they even added pull the refresh in iOS 10. So you can get away with collection views. Um, Apple had a demo, I think, with uh, when iOS 9 came out at WWDC, they talked about re-implementing the Apple Store app using collection views. And they were able to use that on the phone and the iPad. And it would just kind of adapt to the screen size. And that seemed like a 
a pretty good use case. Which that's actually not that easy to do. No, no, it wasn't a the, trivial effort. Yeah. Well, there's no size class support for collection view layouts. You can't say take the flow layout and for compact width devices, say my my item width is this width versus a regular width, like an iPad or something, and say it's going to be this size. You have to do that all in code. It's not impossible. It's just not fun. So, so uh, yeah, talking about auto layout, there were some improvements in nine uh, regarding layout guides and anchors. Yeah. Uh, really minor notes. Like a lot of times people would make like an anchor view to say center some things around the middle and that view would just be blank, maybe hidden, but still participate in the layout. And you can now do that with the layout guides, which is cool. Also, they did simplify auto layout a little bit with stack views. Though my reaction to stack views one year on now is that sometimes they're just more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> I don't know how much of that is trying to do it in a storyboard versus doing it programmatically. If if, uh, if the challenges are more to do with the visual layout versus you know doing something a little explicit in code. I will say that you know the layout guides and stack views are probably the biggest thing for me in iOS nine that I'm looking forward to bringing into some of the the apps that have been stuck on iOS eight. Yeah, those are things that were really hard to do conditionally. Stack views, there were backports, and they were all kind of wishy washy. And then I mean, there's no way to to use auto layout features that are. I guess I guess if you did it in code, you could do it conditionally. You could, but you know, I always, what's the point? Generally speaking, I like to hate. I, I like to avoid. Uh, I like to hate. I like to avoid uh, situations where I've got conditional layout code if I can. Yeah. And you know, putting a, a layer above that to say if it's nine, do this; if it's eight, do it the other way. You just made your testing ten times harder. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you know, if you do have conditional layouts. Now the number of permutations has, has grown significantly and the opportunities for bugs to seep in grow. Although we do yeah, have that that's... nice new Xcode 8 view for seeing all the layouts that's easier to get to than it was in Xcode 7. I guess yeah. we had something similar in Xcode 7, but... It was there and it's somewhat functional. I found that it, it definitely was kind of interpreting your nibs just a little bit. Not, not nearly. It wouldn't always look like what it would look at runtime for sure. There was a good backport for stack views called OA stack view. It, it wasn't without its issues and troubles. And they, there were some things that were introduced in nine that you just can't do in eight, uh, like a baseline support for views, especially labels. I think labels have a baseline. If you wanted to line that stuff up that way, it wasn't possible. It was an okay port and it, it supported storyboards to a small degree and, but really not worth it in my opinion. Because most of the time when you're using a stack view, you're just going to lay out a few items on top of each other or or left to right of each other. It's not not too hard to do. Yeah. Well, under the hood, auto layout's basically creating those constraints for you. So it's certainly not something you couldn't do by hand. In theory, you're saving yourself from having to, to manage all those constraints. Yeah. And if but, you want to remove something from there without actually removing it from the view hierarchy, that was something that's possible in stack views. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of the features I kind of like about it is the ability to animate removing a section um, yeah. with very little code. Mm -hmm. So the last thing on my list, well, there's a couple of small little things, but uh, like gameplay kit, we'll just touch on that real fast. That was available in iOS 9. You might think, well, I'm writing an app. I'm not writing a game. Why do I need gameplay kit? But 
your app might want to make intelligent decisions on behalf of the user occasionally. And there's uh, quite a few good little AI libraries inside of Gameplay Kit. Uh, even believe that was introduced in Gameplay Kit a um, state machine, which yeah. is very helpful in a lot of cases, especially if you're say taking the user through a a flow of some kind. State yeah. machines are great for that. So Gameplay Kit is another one that you can now use. And last, maybe least, I'm not sure. 3D Touch that that was not in any of the WWDC videos, but did come out later with the 6S. That's probably one of those things that was pretty easy to do conditionally. So it's, yeah. well, it is one of those things. Yeah. So <laughs> you probably weren't missing out on that one. And yeah. some people love it. Some people hate it. The actual 3D touch stuff. But yeah, I rarely use it unless I touch my screen too hard by mistake. I think it's one of those things that because not enough third party apps support it and it's not supported on the iPad at all. It's going to have a lower adoption because you're not building up that muscle memory to remember, oh, I can get to this feature faster if I just did the 3D touch. Yeah. I think as more people have newer devices, I, th I think it'll probably be a little bit more common. And there are definitely apps that I think do a really good job with it and might actually be useful. And But a lot of apps, I don't know how much it adds, to be honest. Apple has added more shortcuts uh, on iOS 10, but it seems like on watchOS, they kind of backed off of the, I guess it's Force Touch on right. the badly named Force Touch. <laughs> <laughs> they very much doubled down on 3D touch on the phone and backed off on the watch. I find that quite interesting. And it's completely absent from the iPad. And with 10, they added the Taptic Engine API. So you can actually do things uh, with that as well. So you can, you know, theoretically, you could almost simulate a 3D touch with long press on an older device. I'm sure an older device doesn't have a Taptic Engine, so it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe they'll have a... A Force Touch iPad coming out here in yeah, October. Maybe, but doubt it. You know, if they released the Pro this year, right? Was it both for this yeah. year or, or just a 9.7? I can't remember when the larger one came out. Larger one was first last year in the fall, and then they followed on with the iPad Pro Mini in the springtime. Yeah. So I would have thought that would have had Force Touch if they were going to add it. Yeah, I think it's just a, a large screen, so I'm not sure how well you could support something like that and keep the device thin and it's also the usage model arguably is different you know phone tends to be a lot more task oriented i want to do things quickly so having their shortcuts theoretically in in the form of a 3d touch gesture that kind of lets you get to those tasks quicker like sending a message or posting posting the twitter as long as you remember it's there yeah. And maybe that's just, you know, in their opinion, not something that is, you know, when you're using your iPad the most, you're probably sitting on the couch browsing content and aren't necessarily in a huge hurry, hurry to get things done. I don't know. Who knows what, what they're thinking there? Maybe we will see the Taptic Engine and 3D Touch added in the next iPad. But it makes me think that taking advantage of 3D Touch and probably more so the Taptic Engine is, is going to be a narrow set of use cases that you know a lot of people probably aren't going to encounter. I, I really like it on the uh, the pickers. Every time you, you, do, you go a uh, step up or down on the picker, you get a little click, which is kind of satisfying. <laughs> Yeah. Huh. And I, I could see from a, an accessibility standpoint, that being uh, having the potential of being huge for certain things. Argo, I think you got an app that you can resurrect for that. <laughs> give you a lot of satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I should do that. <laughs> Wouldn't be too hard, right? Nope. <laughs> Your Objective-C still compiles just fine. 
Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have tonight. At least yeah. my list is exhausted. So, uh, yeah. I think there's what? probably a lot of really little gems in there, but uh, these are definitely the high point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely go back, watch some of the videos. There was some home kit things. Uh, the, the what's new in UI kit will get you there. That's, you know, 45 minute video. The intro or the state of the union, I called state of tools or whatever, state of the platform address. That would give you a lot of just a high level overview of what's new. It's a, it was a, iOS 9 was a good release and actually I'm looking forward to modernizing some code. I'm also glad that we got some of the things that we could use up front, like Swift 1, Swift 2, 2 one and so forth that we were able to use instead of having to wait for dropping iOS 8 support or something like that. So, uh, why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. The podcast is at Shared Inst. And uh, if you want to tell us some of the things that we missed that you are looking forward to using or you actually like using right now, you can tell us in our Slack at chat.sharedinstance.com. And if you don't want to broadcast it to all of our other listeners, then you can just send it to an email at sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com. See you guys next week. Later. Later.